want to start tonight with a little bit of a history of a device I'm sure you've not heard introduced in this way from the pulpit here at Straightgate before. I'm talking, of course, about the breathalyzer. Um, actually, I, I could see my cousin Raleigh beginning a sermon like this. Um, outside of him, I'm not sure if anyone would have uh, jumped in on the topic of the breathalyzer. The, the, actually, the history of the breathalyzer is quite interesting. A breathalyzer um, is basically operating under the principle that when you imbibe alcohol, your liver breaks it down and the enzymes that are produced actually as you become intoxicated slow down the functions, the processes of your brain. That's why someone who's intoxicated does not walk right, does not talk right. It is literally because their brain is moving more slowly than the brain of a normal or unintoxicated human. But the breathalyzer works because when you speak, when you breathe, you are actually breathing out ethanol. You're actually breathing out alcohol. And so in the early 1900s, people began to postulate that there was a way in which you could, you could take the breath that was coming out of someone's mouth and use chemical processes that would change color if they sensed the presence of ethanol or of alcohol coming out of the breath. In fact, you can find from 1927 an issue of Popular Science magazine. They actually called it this, Test a Tippler's Breath. Test a tippler's breath. What an, what, an amazing, what an amazing phrase. They actually suggested that housewives could use this device to test whether their errant husbands had been out drinking. Uh, I, I see a, not a society of happy home there. Here, honey, why don't you breathe into this thing? We're going to see if we've caught you out on the town. In 1932, there was a device uh, that was invented. And when they asked what it was called, they literally called it the drunkometer. And the name stuck, a, a drunkometer. Again, something very interesting. Well, 1958, a man, a, a police officer named Robert Frank Borkenstein developed the first modern breathalyzer using a photometer with a reaction that would catch alcohol in breath and use it against potassium dichromate to be able to determine the, the level of blood alcohol content in human beings. Of course, that is now all over the place, the idea of a breathalyzer to, cut, to be able to see whether someone is driving in a sober manner. Well, why do I start here? Um, I start here because, frankly, one of the biggest warnings we receive in Scripture has to do with spiritual sobriety. Of course, the Bible has something to say about physical sobriety as well. We are commanded that a lack of sobriety when it comes to alcohol is a sin, and it is to be resolutely avoided. The way that I avoid that is by never drinking. And I urge each of you to follow the exact same example. That is the simplest way to ensure that you are not crossing any biblical lines when it comes to the imbibing of alcohol. But physical sobriety aside, what about spiritual sobriety? Well, I point out tonight in this very helpful chapter in Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, Paul is speaking to his protege, Titus, and he is encouraging him to teach in such a way, look with me in verse 1, speak thou the things which become sound doctrine. Now that word become is the idea of befitting 
or that would lead to, or that would produce or become consistent with sound doctrine. Now think about what he's saying. Titus, I've given you sound doctrine. I've taught it to you myself. You know the truth. You will teach sound doctrine. So here's what I want you to do, Paul. I want you to speak the things. I want you to teach the things that are befitting of sound doctrine, that are consistent with sound doctrine. And this is really the the emphasis of the whole book of Titus. Titus, you know the truth of the gospel. And I, Titus, I want you to lead churches that reflect it by the way they live. I want your churches, Titus, that you are overseeing. I want them to be filled with mature elders, Christian leaders who reflect the character of what they are teaching. Titus, I want your people to reflect sound doctrine. And now he's going to be consistently, Paul is going to be telling him, what that sound doctrine looks like when applied to life. Look at verse 2. He says, one of these things that Titus should teach or speak is that the aged men be sober, grave, temperate, sound in faith and charity and patience. And the word we're going to focus on tonight is that word temperate. The word temperate there is a Greek word that is Sophron. You can write that down. If you were to, to, to bring that into English, you would write it S-O-F, sorry, S-O-P-H-R-O-N. If you just want to circle that word, perhaps in your Bible, in your notebook, Sophron, S-O-P-H-R-O-N. He goes on to say, look at, the, in verse 3, the aged women likewise, that they be in behavior as becometh holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they may teach the young women to be sober. There's that word there, sober. Actually, this is a word that's related, again, to sophron. It's a verb form. It's sophron needs so. Or, I'm sorry, it's connected. That's actually next in... Um, uh, no, sofra needs so is here in verse 4, that they may teach the young women to be sober. Here's literally what they're saying. You older women should soberize the young women. Soberize them. You are to teach them to be sober in what areas? You are to soberize them to love their husbands and to love their children. Notice then what he keeps on going on in verse 5. To be discreet. Do you know what word that is? Sophron. Same word. Sophron. Sober. Temperate. Self-controlled. So now we said, you older men, I want you to be sophron. I want you to be sober. You older women, I want you to soberize the younger women. And I want them to be sophron. Sober. Guess what he tells the young men? Can you see where this is going? Look with me in verse 6. Young men likewise exhort to be sober-minded. This is the word sophroneo. Again, related to that same root Greek word, sophron. Sophroneo. It is another verb, and it just simply means soberly. Now, what is Paul trying to get at? Older men, be sober. Older women, you be sober so you can soberize the younger women. Younger women, you be sober. Younger men, you be sober. You be sophron. 
In fact, if to drive the point home, look at verse 11 into verse 12 of chapter 2. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly. There's again, connected to that word sophron, soberly. Paul is trying to drive home something, and the Holy Spirit is trying to drive something home to us as Christians today. And the message tonight is simply going to be titled, Are You Sober? Are you sober? Because in Paul's view, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, all of us need to be instructed to be sober. Are you an older man? Sober. Older woman? Sober. Younger woman? Sober. Younger man? Sober. All of us need to be sophron. All of us need to be instructed and confirmed in this way. What I want to look at tonight are simply three points. First of all, this uniform counsel that Paul is giving. Secondly, a unique challenge. Why does Paul feel the need to give this instruction over and over again? And thirdly, we'll look at a universal corrective. A universal corrective. First, a uniform counsel. What is Paul saying here? To each of these categories, older men, older women, younger men, younger women, in, uh, through Titus. Well, what does it mean to be sober? What is the idea of this Greek word sophron? Uh, this actually was a prized virtue in Greek society of the time. This word sophron is, appear, appears in the actual just pagan literature of the day, and it was regarded as a prized virtue. One commentator quotes Euripides. Euripides said this. He described Sophron as, quote, the fairest gift the gods have given to man. The fairest gift the gods have given to man. Socrates, you've heard of Socrates, the ancient Greek philosopher. He said that this Sophron, as one commentator quotes, was the foundation stone of virtue. The foundation stone of virtue is sophron, is this kind of sobriety. So what is sobriety? What does it mean to be sober in this sense? Well, the first thing is here, and this is very important, the word sophron has to do with the mind. Unless you get this, you're not going to understand what it truly is to be sober. To be sophron, to be sober starts in the mind with how you think. It is to think clearly. Now, actually, it's interesting if you were to understand even this word sophron. Sophron from the Greek comes from two Greek words that are placed together. One has to do with thinking. The other has to do with the Greek word sozo, from which we get saved, salvation. In fact, we studied that word this morning when we read that, when we looked at um, Mark chapter 8, and Jesus says, he that saves his life will lose it. Save, that's what it is. It's to hold on to, it's to make safe, it is to possess something. So think about what those two words coming together would mean. It means you have a safe Mind. You have a protected mind. It is a guarded mind. Do you know a way we would use to describe it today? We would say that someone is sensible. I want you to think of the some person you know as being most sensible. What do you think of about that person? That person is sensible. Here's what I think. 
I think it's like when I have been a young lawyer and I, I have not known what to do. Opposing counsel made some demand, some judge asked us to do something, and there has been a particular partner at my firm that I'd go to and I'd ask his advice. I'd say, what should I do here? And do you know what I could always count on? He'd give me sensible advice. He'd say, oh, what you should do is you should do this and then that and that. And do you know what? I would just listen to it and I'd say, you're exactly right. That's exactly the right kind of advice. That's exactly what I should do. Of course, it was so obvious. Why didn't I think of that? Of course that's right. And you probably can think of someone in your life that's sensible. You go to them for advice, for counsel, and they, the way they think, they just go from A to B to C to D. And you say, well, why didn't I do that? That, that, that was so simple. That's what he's getting at. It's someone who is sensible, who thinks clearly. Now, why is this so difficult for us? It's difficult because, frankly, we're not always given to thinking clearly. We view life through a prism, a prism of our own emotional state, a prism of our own mental state, a prism of our own circumstances and surroundings around us. And sometimes looking through life can be like, like one of those magic eye pictures. How many of you have ever done one of those little magic eye pictures when you were younger? Do you know what that's actually called? It's called an autostereogram. It makes something two-dimensional appear to be three-dimensional. I'm talking about one of those pictures that you kind of hold up to your face and you kind of do one of these things. You know, kind of you blur your eyes and you kind of stare at it and then suddenly the picture pops out. That's the magic eye. It's an autostereogram. Now, the interesting thing about that is that picture that's behind the picture, it's always there. It's just that your eyes don't focus to see it unless you look at it just a certain way. You blur the dots together, and then suddenly, whoa, the picture's there, and you see it. And so often for those of us spiritually, we're looking at all these dots in our lives, and it looks fuzzy, and it looks unclear, and we can't figure out what picture is there behind the scenes. And the Bible is saying, be sober, Focus the right way and the picture will pop out. You're going to see clearly what's there behind the scenes. It's like the millions, hundreds of millions, billions of people in the world who look at this Bible and all they see are a bunch of dots on a page. That doesn't make hide nor hair. It doesn't make a lick of sense to me. I can't make hide nor hair of it. And you say, what are you talking about? Don't you see the picture popping out? It makes all the sense in the world. And they say, I can't see a thing. I'm sorry. What's going on? You have the gift of sight. You are able to see what is the picture behind the picture. Your eyes have been opened. Your focus has been brought. You have a measure of sophron that has been, be, been able to perceive and to think clearly about the relationship between God and man as presented in his word. So the first part of sophron that's for all of us is to be thinking clearly, is to be thinking sensibly free from outside influence. And then the second part of sophron that's so important is not only to think clearly, but to act under control. To act consistently with what you see. That's why you see in our King James translation, this word is translated twice here, temperate or discreet. It's the same word, the same idea of having a sensible mind, but the idea is of a sensible mind that regulates how you act. 
A a word that we would use to describe it today is self-controlled. A person who is so fron thinks under control and therefore acts under control. It's a person who is prudent to manage the action, the conduct, consistent with the right way to think about it. Friends, this is a treasured virtue. It's no no wonder that Paul is telling us, Titus, you make sure that the people are acting in a way, are thinking and then acting in relationship to it. You know, friends, one observation about self-control, in my experience and from what I perceive, the real problem with people is not self-control. It's the thinking that underlies it. Let me explain to you what I mean. I want you to take, in your imagination, some vice some fleshly impulse that you have. It could be lust, it could be drunkenness, it could be some kind of fear, it could be some outburst of anger or temper. And I want you to imagine that you were on the precipice of committing this fleshly act that, was a, that would be a, a loss of self-control. You would give yourself over to this impulse. And when you were at the moment of decision to step into that fleshly impulse, someone appeared with a gun that was loaded and pointed at your head and said, do it, I dare you, and I will kill you. Do you know how it would be amazing how quickly you'd develop self-control? You wouldn't click on that link if someone were standing there with a gun to your head and saying, do it, I dare you, you'll die. You wouldn't give that harsh word to your husband if there were someone with a gun standing ready to blow you away. You see, the problem is not actually your self-control. The problem is the thinking that is underlying your self-control. You see, the one who is self-controlled doesn't need a gun to the head not to click on that link or to have that sharp or, or harsh word toward their loved one or to act in a particular way. Why? Because they know that God Almighty is watching every word and will bring it into judgment, and that is enough. The person who has no self-control, it's not that they can't control their action. They can. It's that their mind is not primed to who God is. You know the definition of integrity. Integrity is doing what is right when only God is watching. That's integrity. Integrity is being self-controlled when only God is the one who is holding you accountable for it. And we should all hold that into account. What does it mean to be sober? What does it mean to be sophron? It means to think rightly about who God is and who I am. And then it means to act consistently with that thinking, to be under control for my own fleshly impulses, to be under the control of the Spirit of God in the way my renewed mind processes that truth. So first of all here, there's a uniform council. Paul is going to make sure every age group is dealing with it. Everyone has got to come to grips with what Sophron is. And secondly, I want to see what's a unique challenge. What's a unique challenge? And here's what I mean by this. Why do you think Paul says every age group needs Sophron? What do you think Paul says? Hey, older men, you. Young, older women, you too. Younger men, you too. And younger women, we need everyone to understand and to be reminded about what this sobriety is, this sophron. Can I just encourage all of us in this? We can lack sobriety at any age. I don't know about you, but I oftentimes think of sobriety or a lack of sobriety being 
a younger man problem, a younger person problem. We think of a lack of sobriety, the opposite of sobriety sometimes is frivolity. Someone who's not serious, who doesn't know how to be serious when the time calls for it. We think of a lack of sobriety as the opposite of sobriety as being drunkenness. Intoxication, we think of that oftentimes as being, oh, those college kids, those partiers, those people who are going crazy. But the truth of it, what Paul is saying is, sobriety is something that challenges us at any age. Here's the difference. It just comes out in different, in different circumstances. It just has different kinds of temptations. I was thinking about some examples of this. One that came to mind was in Luke 12. You know, one of the greatest examples of a lack of sobriety in the Bible is that rich old fool in Luke 12. You want to just turn over there really quickly, keep your finger in Titus chapter 2. In Luke chapter 12, listen to what Jesus says about this rich old fool. He says, the ground in verse 16, the ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. And he thought within himself. You see that? He thought within himself. What shall I do? Because I have no room where to bestow my fruits. And he said, this will I do. I will pull down my barns and build greater. And there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. You've got a great retirement account. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said unto him, thou fool. You're a fool. Now, why was he a fool? He was a fool because of how he thought. He was a fool because he said, I've lived, if you'll excuse the idea, the American dream. I am utterly secure. And not only that, there is more money to get. But what did he miss? What was his mental picture not taking into account? He was taking into account that he might die that night. That his life wasn't guaranteed to him. And here's what God says to him. Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then who shall those things be which thou hast provided? So is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. There's an utterly intoxicated man. Oh, not with alcohol. Someone intoxicated with, with deceived thinking that said, I've got it made. You know, friends... Just say, for those who are older, particularly in a prosperous society like the United States of America, this lack of sofron is a real curse if we're not careful. We can afford things, so we buy them. We can afford things, so we do them. We acquire more. We heap up more. You see, Jesus is not saying here that it's wrong to have barns. He's not saying that it's wrong to have a large retirement account. He's not saying it's wrong. What he's saying is the kind of thinking that worries more about being rich for my own purposes than being rich toward God. That's what he's saying. And it's the kind of intoxicated thinking by the allure of the world that in particular can afflict those who are older or who have acquired more. What about for the younger men? The example that came to mind for me was a man named Demas. 2 Timothy chapter 4 tells us of, a, of a, a, a ministry associate of Paul who, what did he do? He departed from Paul. Why? Because he loved this present world. Here's a man, a young, likely a younger man, who was intoxicated by 
not merely the possessions of the world, but the love itself of the world, a given over to a kind of affection for the things of the world. And it led him to depart from his calling, depart from his purpose of assisting Paul. Paul doesn't say whether he truly shipwrecked in his faith. He doesn't say whether he abandoned any profession of faith in Christ, but what mattered was he stepped out of his calling. He stepped out of what, where God wanted him. Why? Because he was intoxicated. Undoubtedly, it started in his mind with being taken with the intoxications, with the desires that related to the world. You see, there's something in particular for young men and for young women that can be very challenging. It's why Paul tells Timothy, flee youthful lusts. There are some lusts, desires, that are particularly youthful. They are given over particularly to youth. Now, notice, there's a kind of, of lack of sophron and intoxication that affects those who are older. It just is natural. It's not the same temptation for those that are younger. They deal with their own concerns. But what's the point? We all deal with it in our own way. We all deal with a lack of sophron. Notice, in fact, go back to Titus chapter 2. Notice what Paul says to the younger women. Notice verse 4. He says to the older women, that they may teach the young women to be sober, to literally soberize them. Older women can have a soberizing effect on younger women in the way they think and in the way they process what is going on. Notice how practical this gets. This soberizing is for what purpose? So that they may love their husbands and love their children. The word their love has the idea of affection. It's actually not the word agape. It's the word from which from, that you would know as phileo. That's the connection, the root from it. It's a kind of fondness, a kind of affection. Do you know what he's saying? Younger women, younger mothers, your temptation when you are not soberized, when your mind is not thinking rightly, is not to be affectionate towards your husband. Is not to be affectionate towards your children. And how much do we see in our world today that wants to convince women that really know there is not a value in your affection towards your husband. There's not a value in your affection towards your children. There are things beyond that that you should be giving yourselves to entirely and investing entirely in. What is needed? A soberizing. A kind of thinking clearly that says, no, what is necessary for me is to be affectionate toward my husband, affectionate toward my children, to give of myself toward the callings that God has for me in this season of life. Paul says, we need soberizing. And again, we could go on a thousand different examples of the ways that these unique challenges apply to us at different perspectives in our lives. But what is common to all of them? It's a kind of intoxication. It's the kind of intoxication of the world that ultimately says, God doesn't have what's best in mind for you. God's calling for this season of your life actually isn't the one that will bring the most fulfillment. Are you called to be single right now? Then you should find ways to stimulate your sexual gratification. God doesn't have your best interests in mind. There are some youthful lusts for you to pursue. 
Are you at another stage of life that feels particularly dreary, that feels particularly isolating or lonely? God doesn't have your best in mind. A worldly philosophy comes in to our mind that affects the way we think. And if, if you don't think that that is so natural and that is so easy to do when that is just coming in all around us, you don't know your spiritual life very well. Because there, it's in the air that we breathe in this culture, bombarding us continually with messages that are fighting against the way that God commands us to think. Why does, why does Romans 12 say, as we studied over and over at Camp Shatek, that we are not to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by what? By the renewing of our minds. Our minds need to be renewed and refreshed day after day after day. Otherwise, we're not going to be sophron. We're not going to be sober. We're going to be like that drunken person, intoxicated. Our minds, our spiritual minds, acting slowly, sluggishly, under the influence of other kinds of influences. You know, friends, today, tonight, I would just ask all of us, where are we tempted to be intoxicated spiritually? Where are we in particular tempted for this kind of lack of sobriety to manifest itself at the particular season of life that we're in right now? Paul says, you better watch out. It applies to every single one of you, no matter what your age, no matter what your season of life. The danger, the unique challenge is that there will be an intoxicant designed by the devil for your stage if you don't watch out. So first of all here, there's a uniform counsel. Secondly here, there's a unique challenge. And then let's look, let's look thirdly at what I'll call the universal corrective. Friend, how do we pursue Sophron? How do we pursue sobriety? Will you look with me down at verse number 11? For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live sofron, soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, literally a special people for himself, zealous of good works." Friends, what will correct the intoxication in our lives? Do you notice what he said right there? The grace of God. The grace of God, he says, teaches us that we should live soberly. And my challenge to you tonight will be to allow the grace of God to be your teacher. It's interesting that word teacher there has the actual idea of, chast of chastising. That's the word that's used, that's, that's the English word that's used elsewhere, like in Hebrews chapter 12, that God chastises us like children. The idea is of teaching by correction, by discipline. Like you take your child to one side when they have acted in a particular way, and you discipline them, you correct them, you set them back on the right path. And now the, our scripture says under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this grace of God is your corrective. It's your chastener. It's your discipliner. 
to free your mind from those outer, outside intoxicants, outside influences, to make them sensible and prudent to think spiritually in the way that you should go. How does this work? Well, let's ask ourselves, what is the grace of God? How could the grace of God teach you? Well, we looked at it this morning, friends. If you were a part of our morning service today, we talked about Jesus saying that if anyone wants to come after them, after him in a relationship of discipleship, they must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow him. And what we understood about that was this, this really not, this is really not a call to just a kind of self-focused discipline, a kind of self-denial that is rooted in my own will. This is really ultimately about my faith, my belief in who Jesus Christ is, what his value is. Is he the supreme treasure of my life for which I will lay everything else aside? It is my faith in him and my reliance on him to live the way he wants me to do, a life of denial to self and of taking up the cross and following him. You know, in a similar way here, the grace of God is that which shows you the picture behind the picture. It's the grace of God that turns those fuzzy dots on a page with everything that you're seeing confusing in your life around you and pops out the picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ and says, that's what's true. Now think on that. The grace of God tells you, friend, who you are. The grace of God tells you that in you lies no good thing, no hope of walking according to the plan and the purpose that God has for your life. And so therefore, you need to be grounded in him and in his word. The grace of God teaches you who he is, that he has given of his son as the sole sacrifice, the sole propitiation for the forgiveness of your sins, that he has a place that he is making eternally for you. There is a new heaven and a new earth that he tells in which all things will be made new, that in him and him alone is your hope of eternal life. It's the grace of God that clarifies everything in a confusing world and says, this is what is true. Now why? in it. Notice what he says. This grace of God not only teaches us, but it's that we should also encourage us is that we should be looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Friends, the grace of God, as it's revealed to us in this word, if you'll pardon the metaphor, is like a breathalyzer. When you come to the word of God every morning, morning by morning, under the, under the direction of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit taps you on the shoulder and says, Peter, you're a little intoxicated in this area, aren't you? You need to come back to the basic truths. You know, Peter, you're getting a little too focused on what's in your bank account. You're getting a little too focused about what your career promotions look like. You're getting a little bit too focused on this distraction over here. Peter, that's not important. You're getting intoxicated. And it brings us back to the realities of the grace of God, which is what's truly important in life, which is who Jesus is and what his kingdom is doing in this world and what he has promised eternally for those who will follow him by faith. You see, friends, unless you are being taught by the grace of God always to come back to the main things, always to come back to the eternal things, always to come back to the valuable things in life, 
your mind is going to be affected by the cultural air you breathe to get intoxicated, to pursue a whole variety of other things other than what is really important. You see, are you sober? Are you sober? The question is for all of us at any age. And what brings us back to solid ground, to sensible thinking, to self-controlled living is when we are grounded in the word of God and the grace that he reveals to us there. I love, for just one example, I love one of the grounding passages for young men. Young men, I'm not going to try to make you old men. There's nothing wrong with being a young man. There's nothing wrong with being a young woman. We shouldn't try to turn our young men into old men. They'll get there. God has a plan for them as a young man. And one of the passages I love is Ecclesiastes chapter 11 and verse 9. Listen to these words. The preacher under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit says, Rejoice, O young man, in thy youth. There's something joyful about youth, about the strength of youth, about the vigor of youth, the energy of youth. It's something valuable about it. Listen to what he says. And let thy heart cheer thee in the days of thy youth and walk in the ways of thine heart and in the sight of thine eyes. There's a way that in which it's appropriate for a younger man to walk. Oh, someday that younger man will put away childish things. But there is something, there's something that may be valuable about the energy and strength and the pursuits of youth. But listen to what he says. But know thou that for all these things, God will bring thee into judgment. You know how wise that is? Young man, rejoice in your season of life. Old man, rejoice in your season of life. Older woman, older or uh, younger women, rejoice in the season of life that God has given you and find energy and purpose in it. But remember, he's going to call you into judgment for it, so be sober. Be sophron. Use your resources wisely. Think sensibly with what he's given you in this stage of life. What is the Bible doing? It's tethering us down to what is most important in life, to what is most valuable in life, to what is eternal in life. They're, he's training us to be sophron, to be corrected, to be chastened, to live a life ultimately that befits the gospel because people look at us and says, say their action and their thinking is consistent with what they say they believe. Friend, what about you tonight? Are you sober? Do you need a breathalyzer test tonight? See, where do we get that grace of God? He says the grace of God has appeared to all men. You know, the Puritans used to talk about something called the means of grace. The way God dispenses his grace and goodness to human beings. And one of the things they talked about was the ordinary means of grace. The ordinary steps of your Christian life by which God brings you to tether you to sensible thinking about the most important things of life, it's this word. Read it and memorize it. It's prayer. Get on your knees and talk to him and have a communication with him. It's the fellowship with God's people. We teach our, each other to be sober, to be sophron. It's the preaching of God's word. It's the time we come tonight to the Lord's Supper together that brings us back to the most important things, that soberizes us and says, Peter, this is what's really important. This is how you should be thinking and living 
in the week ahead. Well, friends, I hope that you will never have an occasion to use a breathalyzer for any purpose, but I do hold in front of you tonight a, a spiritual breathalyzer. The grace of God, through the word of God and the ordinary means of grace, to tether you to sensible thinking, to self-controlled behavior, and ultimately, for all of us at any age and at any season of life, to live out the kind of sophron, sober virtue that God desires.